Lesson 10 for May 28 to June 3, Jesus in Jerusalem. Sabbath afternoon, May 28. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word again this week, we continue the stories that come from the pen of Matthew that tell us so much about the life of Jesus and his relationship with the people about him and his relationship to us. And as we study this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and that you'll bless us each one individually and as families. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Matthew chapter 21 and verse 42. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Let's read that again, Matthew chapter 21 verse 42. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 27 to 28, Jesus said, And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Here's Jesus the eternal God, the one who created all things, who lived the life of a servant here on earth, ministering to the needs of the lost, the sick, the needy, many of whom still scorned him. Such self-denial, such self-abnegation, we can hardly begin to grasp it. But, as incomprehensible as his servanthood is, the marvel goes even deeper, for he, the eternal God, is now facing the whole purpose of his coming here, to give his life a ransom for many. This self-denial, this self-abnegation, will soon climax in a mystery that even angels desire to look at, as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, and that is the cross. This week's lesson looks at some of the major events and teachings of Jesus as he came to Jerusalem, not to be crowned an earthly king, as so many people had desired and hoped, but to be made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, as Paul writes in Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Sunday, May 29, A Prophesied Coming During their seventy-year captivity in Babylon, the Jews began to return to Jerusalem. They were excited to be rebuilding their temple, but as the foundation was laid, those who remembered Solomon's magnificent temple realized that the second temple wasn't going to be nearly as nice. Thus they wept aloud, as it said in Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. The people received some unexpected encouragement from two men standing among them, an old prophet named Haggai and a young prophet named Zechariah. Haggai reminded the people that the true glory of Solomon's temple didn't come from what Solomon or anyone else brought to it. 
It wasn't Solomon's temple. It was God's temple. Haggai said in Haggai 2 verses 6 to 9, This is what the Lord Almighty says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. Things got even more hopeful when the young prophet Zechariah spoke in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Question. How do these amazing prophecies apply to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? Well, let's begin at Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, of a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. In the Desire of Ages, page 570, we read this. Christ was following the Jewish custom for a royal entry. The animal on which he rode was that ridden by the kings of Israel, and prophecy had foretold that thus the Messiah should come to his kingdom. No sooner was he seated upon the colt than a loud shout of triumph rent the air. The multitude hailed him as Messiah, their king. Jesus now accepted the homage which he had never before permitted, and the disciples received this as proof that their glad hopes were to be realized by seeing him established on the throne. The multitude were convinced that the hour of their emancipation was at hand. In imagination, they saw the Roman armies driven from Jerusalem and Israel once more an independent nation. And so, to finish the day, again and again we see how Scripture was fulfilled, and yet at the time the people didn't understand it. What lessons might we take away for ourselves about how preconceived notions could distort the truth?
Monday, May 30, Jesus in the Temple From the earliest days of fallen humanity, animal sacrifices were God's chosen means to teach the world the plan of salvation, salvation by grace, through faith in the coming Messiah, as we read in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression." Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. A powerful example of this truth can be found in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, and the tragedy that ensured over worship among other things. Let's have a look at Revelation chapter 14, verses 7 to 12. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends for ever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Thus, when God called Israel as his chosen people, a king of priests and a holy nation, in Exodus 19, verse 6, he also established the sanctuary service as a fuller and more complete explanation of salvation. From the tabernacle in the wilderness, through Solomon's temple, and through the temple built after the return from Babylon, the gospel was revealed in the symbols and types of the sanctuary service. However, Despite its divine origins, the temple and its rituals were conducted by fallen human beings, and, as with pretty much everything people get involved in, corruption ensued, even here with the sacred service that God had instituted to reveal His love and grace to a fallen world. By the time of Jesus, things had become so terribly perverted by the greed and avarice of the priests, the very ones who were entrusted with administering the services, that, as we read in The Desire of Ages, page 590, in the eyes of the people, the sacredness of the sacrificial service had been in a great measure destroyed. Question. Read Matthew chapter 21 verses 12 through to 17. What lessons are here for us as worshippers of God? 
Matthew 21, beginning at verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise." Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. As in so many other places, Jesus quoted scripture to justify his actions, more evidence that, as followers of the Lord, we must make the Bible central to our whole worldview and moral system. Besides his quoting scripture, there were the miraculous healings of the blind and the lame. All this gave even more powerful and convincing evidence of his divine nature and calling. How tragic that those who should have been the most sensitive and open to all this evidence were the ones who fought the hardest against him. Fearing for their own earthly treasure and status as the stewards and guardians of the temple, many would lose out on the very thing that the temple service was pointing to. Salvation in Jesus. And so to finish today... How can we make sure that we are not letting our desire to gain or maintain anything here, even something good, jeopardize what really matters, eternal life in Jesus? Tuesday, May 31, No Fruit Jesus' cleansing of the temple was an act of compassion. It was the Gentile courts where the buying and the selling were taking place, and Jesus intended his house to be a place of prayer and worship for all peoples. But the cleansing was an act of judgment also. The priests who ran the temple had ruined their chance to bless all peoples. Their day of judgment was near. If, after all, that Jesus had done to reveal his divine calling, these men still refused to accept him, what else could happen but that they reap the results of their doleful choices? Question. Read Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 to 22. How does Jesus' cursing of the fig tree relate to his cleansing of the temple? Matthew 21, beginning at verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt... You will not only do what has what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. 
Jesus Cursed the Fig Tree is an acted parable about many of the leaders of the Jewish nation who were finally and irrevocably reaping what they had sown. We must remember, though, that this parable wasn't referring to all the religious leaders. Many did indeed come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. As it says in Acts 6-7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. However, just as the fig tree bore no fruit, neither did the temple ministry, which was soon to be made void. This action and Jesus' harsh words must have come as a powerful shock to the disciples who were still trying to learn the lessons of compassion and inclusion that Jesus revealed through his ministry. This was the same Jesus who declared that he had come not to condemn the world, but to redeem it. The same Jesus who claimed that, in Luke 9.56, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Every word and deed in his ministry were devoted to restoring fallen humanity, to point people toward the hope and promise of a new life in him. So, for him to act and speak so harshly with such finality surprised them, which is why Matthew wrote that they had marvelled at what he had done. And so to finish today. No question, sooner or later, people totally reject God's mercy, and grace, as we read in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 13, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And Genesis 15 verse 16, But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And Genesis 19 verse 24, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And Revelation 22, verse 11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Why, though, is it so important that we leave those kinds of judgments to God and never make them ourselves, either about others or even about ourselves. Wednesday, June 1. The Stone. If you were just a few days left to live, what would you do with them? One of the things Jesus did was to tell stories that would leave a deep impact on his listeners. Question. Read Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. Who is represented by each of the following? The landowner, the farmers, the servants, the son? Let's begin Matthew 21 and verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. 
and the vine-dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine-dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir come. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine-dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably, and lease his vineyard to other vine-dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes, because... They took him for a prophet. Notice Jesus' quotation of Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, which reads, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. In quoting the prophecy of the rejected stone, Christ referred to an occurrence in the history of Israel. The incident was connected with the building of the first temple. When the Temple of Solomon was erected, the immense stones for the walls and the foundation were entirely prepared at the quarry. After they were brought to the building itself, not an instrument was to be used upon them, and no sound of chiselling and hammering was to be heard. The workmen had only to place them in position. For use in the foundation, one stone of unusual size and peculiar shape had been brought, but the workmen could find no place for it and they would not accept it. It was an annoyance to them as it lay unused in their way. Long it remained a rejected stone. Ellen White comments in The Desire of Ages, page 598. But when the builders came to the laying of the corner, they searched for a long time to find a stone of sufficient size and strength and of the proper shape to take that particular place and bear the great weight which would rest upon it. But at last attention was called to the stone so long rejected. The stone was accepted, brought to its assigned position, and found to be an exact fit. And so to finish today, we're going to read Matthew 21 and verse 44 again. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Two different ways of relating to the rock are represented. One is falling on the rock and being broken. The other is to have the rock fall on you and you being crushed by it. What is the crucial difference between the two? We'll read Psalm 51 verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And Daniel chapter 2 and verse 34. 
you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Thursday, June 2, The Cost of Grace The great news of the Bible is that we were created by a loving God who has provided us all a way out of this mess of sin and death through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This is a theme that appears one way or another all through the Bible. We can see it here also in the following parable that Jesus told. Let's read Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 15. And the question is, what does this parable teach about salvation by faith? Matthew 22, beginning at verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain man who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and went their ways, and one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go out into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen." Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. However harsh this parable might seem, it's important to remember that crucial issues are at stake, eternal life or eternal destruction for every human being. In contrast, what else really matters? When we look at the cross, at what it costs God in order to make a provision for the salvation of humanity— we should be able to see just how vast and deep and incomprehensible, incomprehensibly profound the issues are. We are talking about one person of the eternal Godhead bearing upon himself the full brunt of God's own wrath against sin. It doesn't get more serious than that. If this is a theme that we will be studying throughout eternity, it's no surprise that we can barely get our minds around it now. Hence, we have these powerfully uncompromising words in the parable. God had made full provision for everyone to be part of the wedding feast, 
as we read in Revelation 19.7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Everything that was needed had been graciously provided at a cost so deep that no parable could even just reveal it. So it was bad enough that the people who had been invited to the wedding actually made light of it and went about their own business. But some even attacked those who came to give them the gracious invitation. No wonder the uncompromising response. And the last question for today, what is the meaning of the wedding garment? Revelation 19 verse 8 might give us a clue. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The garment represents the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that is revealed in the life and acts of the saints. The man without the garment represented professed Christians who claim the privileges of grace and salvation, but haven't let the gospel transform their lives and characters. At a great cost, every provision had been made for those who heed the invitation. As this parable then shows, there's more to entering the kingdom of God than merely showing up at the door. Friday, June 3. The London newspaper headline read, Woman dead in flat for three years. Skeleton of Joyce found on sofa with telly still on. Dead for three years in a London apartment and no one missed her? No one called to check on her? How could this have happened, especially in an era of almost limitless communication? When the story first broke, it made international news, though people in London were especially stunned. How could she have been dead for so long, and no one knew about it? Yet, without the hope and promise of the gospel and of the salvation that was so costly to provide for us, we are all doomed to the same oblivion as the poor London woman. But this situation is worse, because there will be no one to find us and even lament over our demise three years or even three billion years after the fact. The current scientific consensus is that sooner or later the entire cosmos will peter out and die in what has been called the cosmic heat death, or some happy appellation like that. What the cross tells us, however, is that this view is wrong. Instead of eternal oblivion, we can have the promise of eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth, with such an incredibly wonderful prospect ever before us. How can we learn not to allow anyone or anything to stand in the way of our getting what we have been offered in Jesus? And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, think about just how final and powerful death is and how futile all human endeavours over the millennia have been to defeat it. The best we can do is, to some degree, preserve our corpses which no more defeats death than a new coat of paint on a car with a burnt-out engine makes it ready for the road again. 
No wonder, then, that it took something as intense and as dramatic as the death and resurrection of the Son of God to conquer death in our behalf. What should this tell us about how central the cross must be to all our hopes and to all that we believe? And question two. Dwell more on what it means to be covered in the righteousness of Jesus. How can a proper and balanced understanding of this important concept keep us from falling into either cheap grace or legalism? And why is it crucial that we avoid either extreme? Inside Story Our Inside Story this week is titled Coming Home, Part 2. I returned to the church I'd grown up in, hoping to find it lively as it had been when I was younger. But I was disappointed. I felt like a stranger. Those believers who used to come visit us if we missed two Sabbaths now did not even know who I was. About that time I met a girl who really attracted me. Sarah was different from other girls. She was simple and humble. She didn't care that I was well known for being a good athlete. I decided to see if she was for real. So I asked her out and took her to my cousin's house, a very simple home with no electricity. I wanted to see what she would say if she thought this was my home. Later she told me, I didn't come to see what kind of house you live in. I came to see you. I was impressed. Sarah and I lived on opposite sides of Fiji but I managed to visit her every weekend. Eventually, I asked her to marry me. As we discussed such things as family and religion, I told her that one day I would return to the Seventh-day Adventist church and that I wanted my children to grow up in the Adventist faith. We got married, but my worldly habits came into our new home. Some, such as alcohol, even threatened to break up our marriage. After tasting the bitterness of divorce as a child, I was determined to not let my marriage fail. So I gave up all the things that were keeping me from being a good husband. I stopped drinking and partying. I returned to church, the same church I had attended as a teen. I found it boring, but this time I decided to do something about it. I served as a deacon and later became the assistant youth leader. The time I had spent in sports I now spent working for God. I found great satisfaction in seeing people walk away from harmful lifestyles and come to God. The balcony of the church had always been the youths. After the pastor I had loved left that church, the balcony eventually emptied. My goal was to fill the balcony again. I loved working with the young people. I had been blessed by the pastor who mentored me, and now I wanted to mentor other young people. I am thrilled to look at that church balcony today and see it filled with young people. Michael Sikari is now an ordained minister working in the Trans-Pacific Union Mission. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.